Galatians chapter 5, and we're just going to read verse 1. Verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, this gathering of believers, this local church, this time, Lord, to worship you together and pray together and look at the scriptures together. Lord, these times are precious. And I pray, Lord, that as you've blessed us so far this morning, Lord, I pray that this time in the scriptures would be a blessing. And Lord, that you would help us to think and understand what we've just read. Because Lord, there's so much confusion all the time surrounding these matters, and they're the most important matters of all. And we know that we have an adversary who doesn't want us to understand. Lord, I pray that the freedom that you have brought for us would be understood this morning and appreciated and marveled at and that you would receive glory today through what you've done and through your word as we think about it, remember it together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Galatians upon examination, stands out among the New Testament as uniquely important for many reasons. But I'm just going to list, I'm just going to name two reasons why the book of Galatians stands out as uniquely important in the New Testament. First of all, the book of Galatians is most probably, by the best evidence that we have, the oldest book in the New Testament. So it's uniquely important because it's the oldest, or most probably the oldest book in the New Testament. And the other reason that the book of Galatians is uniquely important is because it's without rival as the most intense book in the New Testament as well. So here we have the most, the oldest book in the New Testament and the most intense book in the New Testament. And this is important. First of all, it's important that it's the oldest. And this should be supremely interesting to us as Christians that this is the oldest book. It should be supremely interesting to everyone. Because if you want to go back to the beginning and you want to look for the oldest documentation on Christianity that we have, okay? So you've heard a lot about Christianity. You've heard all these theologians arguing. I'd like to study it for myself. I'd like to go all the way back. What's the earliest documentation that we have of anything Christian in history? And guess what you find? The book of Galatians. And what do we find in the book of Galatians? Controversy. Controversy. Over what? Righteousness through faith. Interesting. The oldest documentation of Christianity. And we find controversy over the issue of righteousness through faith. Has anything changed? Over the years, Christianity has remained controversial. Okay, what is Christianity about? Well, let's go right back to the beginning. Let's watch its history, and we find controversy over righteousness through faith. This controversy over righteousness through faith is nothing modern. It's nothing that started with the Reformation. Amen? So some people might think, oh, you guys are always arguing about how we're righteous before God, by works or by grace, by faith or by the law. That's a modern post-Reformation debate. No one heard about that uh, until Luther. No, that's not true. This is actually the original controversy. This is the perpetual controversy. This is the controversy that transcends specific times and specific places because this is the controversy between God's truth and man's wisdom that strikes at the heart of human beings and speaks to them things that are very controversial and things that men don't like to hear. 
This controversy is the inevitable result of God's truth coming into the world through Christ and clashing with the way that the world thinks. And so we find it in the earliest documentation of Christianity. Galatians is also the most intense, as I mentioned, of the New Testament. It's the most intense book, the most urgent book of the New Testament. And this is important as well, because this shows that righteousness through faith is the crucial issue, the issue worth fighting about, the issue worth dying on. You know, Christians fight about all sorts of issues, right? But what we find in Galatians, which is the urgent book in the New Testament. The New Testament is, is full of letters that are addressing problems. But no problem is, draws out as much urgency as the problem in Galatia over righteousness through faith. And so we see that this is the issue. If we suffer loss here, then we suffer the loss of everything. If we suffer loss here. You can suffer the loss in other places, in other doctrines. And you won't lose everything. But if you lose righteousness through faith, you've lost everything, even if you keep everything else. Isn't that amazing? You know, before I became a Christian, before I understood righteousness through faith, I believed much of what I believe now about God. You know, that there's one God and the Trinity and Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus is divine and Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus rose from the dead after he died for our sins. I, I believed... I still believe those things now, and they're very important things. But I had actually lost everything. I didn't have possession of the knowledge of God, and I didn't have possession of salvation, because I didn't have possession of the truth of righteousness through faith. You could have all those other things and not have righteousness. Through faith, the book of Galatians shows us. This is the crucial issue. What do you want to spend your time contending for for the rest of your life? Do you want to be a Christian who gets all bent out of shape about secondary doctrines? I'm not saying we shouldn't discuss secondary doctrines. They're, they are important. But when people say to us, you Christians who believe in righteousness through faith, you're always bickering about it. You're, you're splitting hairs. It's just about believing in Jesus. It's just about being the best person you can be. It's just about trying to follow the Sermon on the Mount. You guys are just splitting hairs about are we justified by faith or works so don't add a little bit of work. No, that's not true. The fact that the book of Galatians is the oldest and most urgent book in the New Testament should encourage us who have thrown all of our chips on righteousness through faith. And when people say we're making a mountain out of a molehill, we can say, well, if we're making a mountain out of a molehill, so did Paul. And in fact, it's not, according to Paul, a molehill. This is the issue. This is what's worth fighting for. Now before we jump back into our series and jump back into the middle of expositing the book of Galatians because we finished at the end of chapter 4 and we're beginning chapter 5, we need to briefly catch ourselves up as to where we've come from and get a little bit of context before we look at verse 1. The year is A.D. 50. A.D. 50, about 17 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Not a long time at all. And the gospel has already begun to spread from Jerusalem and from Judea as far as Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. 17 years after the death and resurrection. Paul has been a huge missionary force already in the church. He's been planting churches in the provinces of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and one of those provinces is a province called Galatia. But the gospel hasn't really gone further than that. It's still in its early stages. And at that time, there were men from Jerusalem. They were Jews. They were actually Pharisees, the book of Acts tells us, who believed in Jesus. Think about it. Pharisees who believed in Jesus. Many Pharisees did, the Bible tells us. And they professed faith in Jesus Christ. And what they did is they went to these churches that had already been established. So, you know, Paul had been blazing the trail and founding Christian communities. And then these men come to those communities, to the community and the, to, to the different churches in the provinces of, uh, in the province of Galatia, and they were teaching the people something different than what Paul taught. And here's what they were teaching. You can read about this in Acts 15. They were saying that it's 
yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he came into the world. Yes, he died on the cross as the sacrifice for our sins. Yes, his blood was shed for forgiveness. Yes, he rose from the dead. And yes, we need to believe in him, of course. But that's not enough. And in order for you and for me to be justified before God, to be righteous before God, to receive that salvation, we need to do more than simply believe in him. We also need to be circumcised as the law requires. And when we're circumcised, that's a commitment to keep the law and to obey the law. And that's necessary for salvation. And Paul is wrong. They were actually questioning his apostleship. Paul is wrong. Paul wasn't an original disciple of Jesus. Don't trust him. He's confused. He's kind of gone off the deep end. The law is necessary for salvation. These men could not see how Christ would, how Christ the Messiah would do away with righteousness through law. They couldn't see how the Messiah coming into the world that he would come and do away with the way things were, so they thought. They would say, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, did not come into the world to change things, but to fulfill things. He didn't come into the world to nullify the law, but to fulfill it. Those are his very words. He came into the world to establish what God had put in place and what people had corrupted. He came into the world to establish, not remove, what God had set up. That's a very convincing argument, actually. And it was so convincing that these men were actually drawing disciples away from uh, the truth to themselves. Here's what they didn't see. What they didn't see is that the law was never a means for righteousness. See, they thought the law was a means for righteousness. And now they hear Paul saying, Jesus has come and changed things. You know, once people were righteous by the law, and now, since Jesus comes, no one's righteous by the law but through faith. And they're saying, no, no, you're changing things. God doesn't change his ways. He's not nullifying what he set up. He set it up and he's keeping it that way. And what they didn't understand is that Jesus, yes, he didn't come to nullify the law but to fulfill. Yes, Jesus established what God had already set up in place. The law was never, brothers and sisters, a means for righteousness, ever. No one was ever justified by the law. Amen? Before Jesus came, when God gave the law, God did not think this was the way to be righteous. God knew it was not. And the only way to ever be righteous was through faith in Christ. That was it. The law was given as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, to show us our sin, to show us our need of salvation through faith. So these, these men are confused. They think there's changes going on. No, there's not changes. You've just misunderstood the law. You've misunderstood the past. And so it's to this situation that Paul wrote the book of Galatians, and in no uncertain terms, he calls these men, not confused, but false brothers, and he calls their gospel another gospel and a false gospel. And anyone who preaches that gospel or another gospel, let them be accursed, he says. Very, very strong words. Paul is urgent and he warns them that following these men is to depart from Christ. Is to depart from Christ altogether, even though they claim to believe in Jesus. So Paul writes this letter. If we were to try to put this into a modern setting, imagine someone came to our community here. Or imagine a group of men came to our community here. And they joined themselves to our little local church. And they begin to join Bible studies, and they begin to be very vocal in Bible studies, and they begin to say things like, you know, uh, actually, you guys have it wrong. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it, and it's all about the law being established. You see, and he can point to different verses, and, and in order to be righteous, we have to keep the commandments. Of course, God's not going to justify us if we're in sin and living in sin. Uh, Jesus came to take us out of sin. Jesus came to lead us into uh Righteous living and righteous behavior so that we can be saved. And they begin to preach against righteousness through faith alone. And they begin to send you personal emails. And they begin to invite you over to their house and have you over to dinner. And they're trying to convince you that this is 
that this whole thing you're believing is false. You need to keep the commandments to be saved. Jesus will help you do that. Now I hope that you would see through that. I hope that you would be discerning. But what if, what if some people started to believe them? What if some people started to think, yeah, maybe salvation isn't simply through faith. Maybe you do have to believe, but there's more to it than that. Maybe God does require me to live righteously to be saved. And it's not all provided for me in Christ. That's what, that's what Paul says. And I hope that we would respond as Paul responded with the same urgency and seriousness. So uniquely urgent is Galatians. And turn with me to chapter 1. That Paul skips the usual salutation and thanksgiving that he has in his letters. And he jumps right into the matter. He's got really nothing good to say here. He's just got warnings to say. And in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, look at that with me. He describes the situation exactly as it is. In verse 6 he says this, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some, he's going to call a spade a spade here, they're going, to, they're going to say, no, we're here to preach the gospel and righteousness and help you. He says, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort or pervert the gospel of Christ. He's so urgent, he skips the thanksgiving, he jumps right in, and he, he describes the situation exactly as it is. Throughout the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul defends his apostleship as we looked, as we looked at when we were going through here. He defends his apostleship against the slanders of these men who were trying to discredit him and therefore his message. And he shows how he was commissioned directly by Christ and therefore he's not a lesser apostle. Just because he wasn't one of the original 12 kind of wandering around with Jesus doesn't mean he's a lesser apostle. He was commissioned directly by Jesus. And he establishes his independence from the apostles in chapter 2. And one, one and two, because he, he was hearing these slanders that, oh, Paul, he's a lesser apostle and he was simply commissioned by the other apostles and, and he's now gone renegade. He's departed from his original mandate that the apostles gave him. But Paul wants to show his independence from the apostles. He's an apostle directly from Christ. And he also is at pains to show his agreement with the apostles that the other apostles aren't in disagreement with him when it comes to righteousness through faith. And then beginning... Just before chapter 3 and all the way to the end of chapter 4, Paul begins his passionate doctrinal defense of righteousness through faith alone, apart from works, apart from the law. Just before chapter 3 and all the way to the end of chapter 4. Using logic, history, experience, and especially scripture, Paul argues for righteousness through faith. And he gives seven positive arguments for righteousness through faith. He also deals with some objections to righteousness through faith. And I won't go through all those arguments. We did look at them when we were going through. But he gives seven positive arguments. These are classic, definitive arguments that have been used over and over and over again in the history of the church. Really, if you pick up a book on justification at our bookstore, which you should do, um, and you read about arguments for justification through faith, you're going to find they're basically just a, a, a telling again of these classic arguments that Paul gives. Paul effectively shows the error of this perpetual heresy. Brothers and sisters, the book of Galatians really does deal with this error. It really does argue for and, and sufficiently establish the doctrine of righteousness through faith. I think because we often just read it quickly and we don't spend a lot of time on it, we maybe don't think so. You know, you might say, I've read Galatians a lot of times and I still am kind of questioning righteousness through faith. And yet, here in this letter, these arguments are classic. The letter is sufficient, brothers and sisters. And if people studied it, if they gave careful attention to what Paul was saying, they would see that he amply proves the gospel of Jesus Christ. That 
we are righteous through faith apart from works. Do you believe that? He amply proves it in this letter. And that you don't need actually to go to any other work. Although they're helpful and useful. You'd think more people would be eager to read Galatians and to study these arguments and to find out if what Paul has to say about justification through faith. It's the best news in the whole world. But most people don't want to take the time to study his arguments. Most people don't want to look. Most people don't want righteousness through faith to be true. And we might ask, why? You know, As Christians, that's the best news in the whole world, right? Why do people not want righteousness through faith alone to be true? Because they already think that they are good and righteous, right? They already think that they've received God's approval and favor and have eternal life. And this message of righteousness through faith is beneath them. What do you mean I'm like every other sinner in this world? What do you mean my righteousness is filthy rags? What do you mean my neighbor who I see constantly uh, doing all these evil things that I don't do, what do you mean I'm the same as him? And what do you mean that I have to get down and dirty on my face and as a helpless beggar receive (coughs) salvation from Jesus freely like a beggar? This is beneath me. I'm better than that. And they'll even think God's better than that, you know? No, God's not like that. He's not. God doesn't require all that perfection stuff. He's a lot nicer than that. And this doctrine isn't pleasant to those who already think that they're good. But for us, Christians, who know that we're not good, how many of you know that you're not good? You know that you're not righteous. You know that God really does require perfect love. And you know by daily experience that if that's the standard that he judges the world by, you fall short. And that's even at, maybe at some point brought you to some desperation. It's, you haven't felt good about that, but you know that it's true. You're not good. You're helpless. You can't keep the commandments. You can't do it. And for us who understand that we're sinners and helpless sinners, boys, righteousness through faith is good news, isn't it? It's the best news in the whole world. Everything a poor sinner wants is here in the gospel when we're feeling guilty and we long for forgiveness. Oh, I wish that God would forgive me of my sins. I wish that he would cleanse me from my unrighteousness. Like David prayed in Psalm 51. Oh Lord, have mercy on me and forgive me and cleanse me because I know my sin. It's always before me. I know how vile I am. I've done a horrible thing. I was conceived in sin. I'm a wretch. But please have mercy and forgive me. Well, guess what? The good news proclaims God's forgiveness and mercy towards us helpless, vile wretches. That's what the good news does. You want forgiveness? Good news. It's there. You want mercy? It's there. Oh, I wish that God would favor me undeservedly. It's there. You want to be favored by God? And just because God is good? not because you've earned it or worked for it. The good news proclaims such favor. God gives you his grace freely. You want blessing. I wish that God would bless me. I wish that I had eternal life. I wish that I had hope in my life. I wish that there was hope beyond this grave. And yet I'm a helpless, wicked sinner. But oh, I wish that I could have hope. Guess what? The gospel, the good news, proclaims hope to you individually. There is hope for you beyond the grave. There is blessing and there is life. You want it? It's there for you and it's free. I wish I could have peace and joy. I wish I could have a relationship with God where God really delights in me and I can approach him freely and talk to him as a father and and that he wouldn't be distant. I wish I could really know him and have intimacy with God. Guess what? The gospel proclaims it and it proclaims that good news. You can have a relationship with God and totally free, it doesn't depend upon how good you are or you earning it. I wish that I was loved unconditionally by someone. How many of you want to be loved unconditionally? 
I wish that there was someone in this world who just loved me despite all of my faults, all of my sins. They knew me through and through, and they deeply cared for my soul. Well, we've got good news for you as Christians, don't we? The gospel tells you, you are loved by God so deeply, His love transcends anything you've ever experienced in this life, anything you will ever experience by another human being. There is that love for you in Christ. It's all there in the, good, in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the treasures of God are there for those who are willing to look. And those who are willing to look are those who know their need. It's that simple. So this brings us to the end of chapter 4 and to the beginning of chapter 5. Having finished his arguments having laid out the case for righteousness through faith and not by works, after he's concluded that, after he's sufficiently proven it, Paul now turns to exhortation and he exhorts us and the Galatians as to what to do now that these things are so and shown to be so. So chapters 5 and 6 of the book of Galatians contains the final exhortation in light of what has been demonstrated in this letter. And verse 1, which we read, stands at the fountainhead of all the exhortations. Verse 1 is the fountainhead. Verse 1 contains all the other exhortations inside of it. Everything kind of comes out of this verse that we read this morning on freedom. And it's the main point of the letter. Many, many commentators have pointed out that Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, captures the main point of the letter. The men are trying to draw these, these Galatians back into bondage, and Paul is writing this letter to call them to stand, to call them to be firm and to not waver. So this morning we're going to look at just two things, and mostly on the first thing. First of all, we're going to look at this amazing freedom that Christ has brought us. This amazing freedom that Christ has brought us. We're going to take a look at that. And then lastly, we're going to look at the need for standing firm in that freedom. The freedom Christ has brought us, the Christian's freedom. Look at verse 1. It was for freedom, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. That's exciting, isn't it? That's an exciting verse. That's an exciting and encouraging verse. I think it should be encouraging to all who read that. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. That is the work of the Messiah was freedom and is freedom. You remember in Isaiah 61 where Isaiah is speaking about the Messiah's work and Jesus applied those words to himself. He says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to proclaim liberty to those who are captive. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is in the business of setting captives free. That is something that even the modern mind should find irresistible. The modern mind is interested in freedom. And here we have in the Bible saying, you know what Messiah's work is all about? Freedom. Christianity is liberating. Amen? And we should feel liberated when we become Christians, as Christians. How many can attest that Christianity is liberating and you felt liberated by being a Christian? Can you personally attest or is that simply religious speak that has no meaning? Christianity is liberating. And yet much of what passes for Christianity is simply people attempting a little reformation in their lives. You know, all across this world, many people profess to be Christians. What they mean by Christianity and what their experience of Christianity is, is them just trying to turn a new leaf in their life, right? Trying to get their life in order. Yeah, I've kind of lived crummy and now I'm going to become a Christian. I'm going to join God's family and I'm going to start doing all the things that I'm supposed to do and stop doing all the bad things I'm supposed to I'm going to try anyway. Basically, what passes for Christianity a lot of times is just a new attempt at the law. Yeah, I, I confess I'm a sinner and I, I've Failed at obeying the law. I'm going to try harder now. I'm going to really try harder this time. God, I'm coming back to you. Here I come. That's a, what a lot of Christianity is. I can say it even for myself. Growing up, 
going to church, going to Christian camps. A lot of it is just, you know, dedicate your life to Jesus again. Try harder. Turn over a new leaf this time. Don't go back to that bondage of sinning. Stop sinning, and you won't be in bondage anymore. That kind of thing. And for many people, they know nothing of this liberty that Paul is talking about. Why did Christ set us free, the Bible says here? For freedom's sake. Jesus wants you to be free. Think about that. Jesus wants you to be free. He wants you to know that you're free, and he wants you to enjoy the freedom that he's given you. Therefore, by standing fast in freedom, by living as liberated people, you're actually fulfilling the desire of Jesus for your life. Isn't that interesting? You get up in the morning, you might think, what does Jesus want me to do today? Well, he wants you to be free. Amen? So therefore, it doesn't matter how much you think you're doing for Jesus. If you get up in the morning today and say, I'm going to serve Jesus today. I'm going to live my life for Jesus. I'm going to do what Jesus wants today. But if you are not free and liberated, it doesn't matter how much you think you're serving Jesus. You're actually not doing what Jesus wants. Because Jesus wants you to be free. It was for freedom that he set you free. Stand fast. Don't go back to the yoke of bondage. If you go back to the yoke of bondage, even in the name of serving Christ, you're not doing what Jesus wants. Imagine a slave that's freed by another, by a liberator, who doesn't know that he's free. You think the liberator would be happy? He frees the slave. He wants the slave to be free. And the slave doesn't even know he's free. He is free, but he just doesn't know it. I'm going to go back to work, you know, and do what I have to do. I don't think the liberator would be very happy. Or imagine a slave who's free and he doesn't enjoy it. He wants to go back to his slavery. I don't think the liberator would be very happy. Even though that sounds crazy, why would someone who's freed from slavery want to go back to their slavery? And yet the Galatians are doing that very thing. Paul says in Galatians 4, they want to go back to the law. And so Paul exhorts them to stand. The 17th century English bishop, Joseph Hall, commented how strange that that such an exhortation should, should be necessary. Stand fast in the freedom. Don't go back to bondage. How strange that such an exhortation should be necessary. In the case of a liberated bird, or an emancipated slave, it would be unnecessary. Yet facts prove it necessary in the case of Christ's free men, says Joseph Hall. What then is the freedom that Christ has brought us? What is the Christian's freedom? I'd like to start by saying what it is not. The freedom that Christ set us free for is not the freedom that Mel Gibson famously called out for in the movie Braveheart. That's, a, that's an iconic moment of freedom in Western civilization. <laughs> it is a good movie. I can agree with you. But the freedom that Christ brought us is not the freedom that Mel Gibson called out for in Braveheart. It's not the freedom that the French citizens are singing about in Les Miserables. It's not the freedom that Patrick Henry wanted when he said, give me liberty or give me death. When Paul says it's for freedom that Christ set us free, don't go back to the yoke of bondage. He's not talking about political, social, or economic freedom, as wonderful and as important as those things are. Jesus did not lead one person out of prison in his lifetime. True? Out of physical prison. He says, I've come to set the prisoners free. Well, he didn't do it once if he meant physical prisoners. Paul never told any slaves to stand fast in their freedom and to desert their masters. They're not talking about political, social, and economic freedom. They're dealing with something that's far, uh, they're dealing with a much more serious bondage than those things. Political bondage, social bondage, economic bondage. Do not hold a candle, friends, to the the bondage that Christ sets us free from. The freedom that he's talking about here, the freedom that Christ sets us free for, is not the freedom of a hippie 
drug user who wants you to free your mind. Man, you need to be free. You're not free. You need to take this. Then your mind will open up to the, the wide world. You're not free. It is not freedom from the laws of logic or absolute truth or the physical and moral order of God's created universe, which is basically what drugs is trying to free you from temporarily. The Bible knows of no such freedom from truth and order and logic. And Jesus did not die on the cross to rescue us from God's creation, to fix God's creation, but not to rescue us from it. Nor is Paul talking about freedom, as so many people think, from rituals and ceremonies. Many people think that the freedom he's talking about here, stand in the freedom, don't go back to the yoke of bondage. He's talking about rituals, religious rituals, religious ceremonies that people think are bondage because they look at them and say, oh, how tedious that every time you walk into a church you have to light a candle or put a little water on yourself. You know, ooh, that's tedious stuff. <clears throat> rituals and ceremonies, brothers and sisters, are not wrong in and of themselves. And actually, many people in life enjoy rituals and ceremonies. A lot of rich, there's a lot of religious people who like keeping the Sabbath. You know, they enjoy it. Just because you don't enjoy it doesn't mean they don't enjoy it. They like lighting candles. They like liturgical worship. You know, they like stuff like that. It's not a burden to them. It enriches their life. The freedom that Paul is talking about here is something far deeper because the bondage is something far deeper than just bondage to have to do some rituals, ceremonies. Jesus didn't die on the cross just so that we don't have to take animals to Jerusalem and kill them. So it's not the freedom that a political leader brings us. It's not the freedom that drugs bring us. It's not the freedom that an anti-ritualist brings us. It's the freedom that Christ brings us. Notice in verse 1, he is the liberator. And while the book of Galatians is all about liberation, and we see throughout the book of Galatians that this freedom is inseparably connected with righteousness through faith. It's inseparably connected with righteousness through faith. There are three times in the book of Galatians so far already where Paul explicitly mentions Christ redeeming us. The word is redeemed or ransomed or released us. And we're going to look at those. Look at chapter 4. Verse 3 to 5. Three times already in the letter, Paul has specifically mentioned Christ redeeming us. And we're going to go backwards. Chapter 4, verse 3. He says in verse 3, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might release those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So here Paul mentions the release that Christ has brought us as our liberator. He tells us here that we were in bondage, we were in bondage to the law. We needed releasing from the basic elemental things of the world, the law and the moral obligations of the world. This is what the law is all about. The law expresses God's will for our lives, and it expresses God's judgment upon us if we don't fulfill his will. That's what this basic elemental things of the world is, which Paul also in verse 5 describes or comes under the word law. That's what the law is. God's will for your life and his judgments if you don't fulfill his will. That's what we were under. That's what Jews and Gentiles were under. You didn't have to be a Jew under the law of Moses to be under God's moral obligations and God's will and his judgment for not fulfilling his will. How many of you have fulfilled the will of God for your life as it is laid out in the law? And you see, if you weren't freed 
from the law and released from that, then you would be subject to his judgments that come upon you for not obeying his will. Look at chapter 3 now, verse 13. This is the next time where Paul mentions Christ releasing us or redeeming us. Chapter 3, verse 13. Christ released us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So here, he says something a little bit different. In the other passage, it says he's released us from the law. He's released us from the elemental things of the world, the basic system of the world. Which, because we're under that, or when we're under that, and we none of us obey it, brings a curse. We've said this many times in church, but the law, because if we're under the law, we will inevitably sin, brings a curse. And so Paul argues here in chapter 3 that everybody who's under the law, if you are subject to the law, if you have to fulfill the will of God, as it is laid out in the law, you are therefore inevitably under a curse, which Christ released us from, according to verse 13. He released us from the judgment that comes upon us because we haven't fulfilled his will and which we could not escape otherwise, brothers and sisters. There's no way to get out of that curse apart from Christ. And how does he release us according to verse 13? He released us not by walking up to God and bargaining with God and saying, hey God, you know, if you just lower the standard a little bit, I think I can convince them to do it. Right? I think that's what a lot of people think Christ basically did. God, your standards are too high, but lower them and I'll help them and they can get it done. God can't lower his standards. That's what goodness is, perfect love. The only way we could be freed is by Christ becoming a curse for us. That is, Jesus took our place. Jesus took our sins. He became our sin in our place. He died on the cross and became a curse for us and bore the judgment that we deserve so that we don't have to. It's an amazing gospel, isn't it? That he would do that. And by doing that, he releases us from the curse of the law. So we're released from the law itself. We're released from the curse of the law. And look at verse uh, 4 of chapter 1. Galatians 1 verse 4. This is the other time so far where Paul has mentioned our release by Christ. And it says in verse 4, Christ gave himself for our sins. And by doing that, that he might release us from this present evil age according to the will. This is what God wants for us, of God our Father. So three times Paul has said he releases us from the law. He releases us from the curse. And here he says he releases us from the present age, from the world that is under the bondage of the law and is under sin and is under the curse. You and I who are believers in Christ are no longer under the law, under sin, under curse. We're therefore not a part of this age anymore. We're not a part of this world anymore. We've been taken out of the world, the world that is under judgment. We don't belong to it anymore. We're freed from this evil world. You see, a person can be politically, socially, and economically free and yet not free according to God. Amen? Give William Wallace his free Scotland. Give the French citizens their republic. Give Patrick Henry his liberty. You can have it all and yet still not be free according to God. And you can be in political and social and economic bondage. You could be a prisoner in a physical cell. You could be someone who's economically destitute and be free according to God. Amen? You can be free from the law. You can be free from the curse of the law. You can be free from this present evil age and world and yet be sitting in North Korea in a prison where there's no freedom of religion, no freedom of government, no freedom of speech, and yet you are a free man or a free woman. And you know, brothers and sisters, nobody is going to care about political, social, and economic freedom on Judgment Day. 
right? Many people think they're free now who enjoy those things. But they will find out on Judgment Day that they have been in chains all along, in bondage to the law, under the law. God's will for their lives according to the law demands from them a particular kind of behavior. And if they do not fulfill it, they can't get out of his judgment. And therefore, they're under the curse of the law. And they don't even know it. And therefore, they belong to this fallen, cursed, and under judgment evil age. And they don't even know it. Hey, I'm an American. I'm free. I got free speech. I got free rights. I got all the things that free democratic people should have. And I'm even wealthy. And I have great social freedom and and I take drugs or whatever else. And I don't do any silly rituals. And yet you're chained your whole life because you're not actually free. And one day when a person realizes, man, I've been in chains my whole life. On judgment day, all that other freedom didn't really matter compared to this freedom. When they're cast into hell forever, they'll cry out, oh, I wish now that I was free. Free from the law of God. Free from his demands. Free from the curse of the law. Free from my sins. Free from condemnation. I wish I had listened before when they told me that I was a slave and that I could have been free. I looked at them like they had two heads. What do you mean I'm a slave? I've never been a slave to anybody. And the Bible tells you you're a slave if you're not a believer in Christ. If the Son hasn't set you free, you're not free indeed. Jesus said that to them. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free. And they said, we're not slaves. We don't need to be set free. And he didn't, they didn't understand what he was talking about. How many of you would trade freedom in Christ from the law, from sin, from the curse, from condemnation, from this world? How many of you would trade that freedom for political, economic, and social freedom that Mel Gibson and Patrick Henry and Les Mis are all one. Would you make that trade? You wouldn't say, man, that's the real freedom. Right? It's not. The freedom Paul is talking about, look at Galatians 5 verse 1, is entirely about freedom from the law and what comes with that, which is freedom from the curse. He calls... The opposite of the freedom, the yoke of bondage in verse 1. Don't be subject again to the yoke of slavery or the yoke of bondage. And it's an interesting phrase, the yoke of bondage or the yoke of slavery, because it's no secret that the Jews in Paul's day and even today call the law by this phrase, the yoke of the commandments. They call it that. And they say, when you become a Jew, if you convert from being a Gentile to a Jew, you come under the yoke of the commandments. And that's a really good thing in, in the Jewish mind. That's a great thing. Because now you're leaving darkness and you're entering light. Now you're leaving unrighteousness and you're entering righteousness by taking upon yourself the yoke of the commandments. It is this yoke that's going to get you blessing. It is this yoke that's going to give you life. It is this yoke that will bring you freedom. And here is a play on words. And here's what Paul is saying. It's ironic. He's saying, you think that the law is the way to freedom and the way out of slavery and the way to salvation. You call it the yoke of the commandments. You say that like it's a good thing. And with a little pun or play on words, he says, don't be subject again to what he's been talking about throughout the whole letter, the law, the yoke of slavery, because that's what it really is. The law is the yoke of bondage. It's just the opposite of what you think. Which is so often what Christianity proclaims. The opposite of what people think. Martin Luther is right when he says, it is not without cause that Paul calls it the yoke of bondage. The law. For as we have often said before, the law doth but reveal, increase, aggravate sin, accuse, terrify, condemn, and genders wrath. And finally, it driveth poor consciences into desperation, which is the most miserable and most grievous bondage that can be. The worst bondage that can possibly be is when your conscience 
is driven to desperation knowing that the law condemns you and you're under God's wrath and you can't do anything about it. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And it's interesting, when you look around the New Testament and it talks about freedom and it talks about bondage, it's noticing how related it is how related this bondage is to fear. To fear. In fact, the New Testament say that where there is freedom, there is not fear. And where there is bondage, there is fear. Look at chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 14 and 15. He says here, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise also took, partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to bondage or slavery their whole lives. So here, he, look how he's talking about the slavery. Their whole lives, they're slaves to fear. Fear of death, free of, fear of punishment, because they know that they're sinners, because they know that God is a righteous God. Because they know what God requires of them and they haven't given it. And the devil's there saying, yep, I'm the one who, uh, who's got you now, you wicked sinner. I will accuse God. I will accuse you before God and lay claim upon you and destroy your soul. And Christ, it says, by his death, by dying for our sins, by taking away our sins through his death, frees us and makes sure this, I mean, do you see that this is true for you? He frees you from the fear of punishment. Why are you not afraid of being punished? Because Jesus was punished in my place and exhausted it for me. And so I don't need to fear because Christ has died. Who is, who is the one who can condemn me? One commentator writes this, I cannot hold anyone free so long as his conscience locks him up into the fear of death and punishment. The mind which has places which it is afraid to touch can never roam freely everywhere. And the mind which cannot go anywhere never is free. It is the sense of pardon which is a man's emancipation. Turn to Romans chapter 8. If you've ever struggled with guilt and the fear of punishment, you know that no wide open meadow makes you feel free. But look, Eli, you can go walk wherever you want. Yeah, but <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 15. This is a powerful statement of freedom by Paul. And in Romans 8, verse 15, Paul says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to, there it is again, fear. When you become a Christian, you do not receive the spirit of slavery. You're not a slave anymore. You're not in bondage, leading again to fear. We're released from fear. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You don't need to be afraid anymore. You don't need to be a slave anymore. Christ has delivered you, and you now stand in a totally new relationship with God. And look at verse 21 of chapter 8. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what he's saying is creation itself, our physical bodies, the trees, the animals, everything in this physical world is actually subject to the curse. That's slavery, bondage. Why? Because of sin, God has brought judgment upon the creation itself. And the creation is in bondage to that curse. Yet one day it will be released from that curse. One day our own physical bodies and this entire physical world will be delivered from corruption. And guess what? It says it, it's just going to simply catch up to the freedom that we have right now. We now are free from the curse. Amen? We as Christians are not under the law. We're not under sin. We're not under condemnation. We're free. We're sons. And one day our bodies itself and creation will catch up to that. Glorious freedom. 
The song, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, captures this Christian freedom Paul's talking about, which is all about how could God have died for me, a sinner, who pursued him to death, me, a wretch. And at one point in the song, Charles Wesley wrote, My chains fell off and my heart was free. My heart was free. And I fear no condemnation. I dread it no longer. That's the freedom that Jesus came to bring us and that Paul's talking about. <clears throat> Sight was gone and fears possessed me, another hymn says, but he freed me from them all. If you're a Christian, be encouraged today, brothers and sisters. You are free. Think about that. Get up in the morning and realize, you know, Jesus wants me to be free. That's why he died for me. He wants me to enjoy my freedom. If I'm not living a liberated life, free from fear, and I'm not doing what Jesus wants, even if I'm trying to keep all of those commandments. If you're a Christian, be encouraged. You are not under the law. God's will for your life, as it is described in the law, is not binding on you any longer so as to punish you or threaten you with his punishments. What an awesome freedom. It's not that the law isn't good. We can look at it and say, wow, that's really great. I should do that. But I'm free. I don't have to do it anymore because if I did have to do it, I'd be under the curves. You're not under the law, therefore you are not in God's sight to be condemned or to be accused. You are free from wrath. You are free from all. If you're a Christian, you are a son of the Father. You know him now. You understand who he is, his righteousness, his grace. And you live in his favor and in his delight. What an amazing condition you have. Enjoy it, brothers and sisters. Enjoy it every day. It's yours. And finally, and I'll just say this and then close the sermon, close the message here. The need for standing firm in this freedom. Galatians 5.1. Paul talks about our freedom and what a glorious freedom it is. And then he tells us, and he tells the Galatians to keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And according to this text, it's possible to be subject again to the yoke of slavery. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says that these false brothers come in to spy out our liberty. So they hear that we have liberty. They hear that we're free. They hear that we are not, we're living in total freedom from the law and we're living in the delight of the Father and we don't believe that we have to keep the commandments to have this. It's through faith in Christ. And that bothers them and they come in, it says in chapter 2, verse 4, to spy out our liberty and to bring us into bondage. They want to take us out of this liberty and bring us into bondage. And Satan seeks to ruin us until the day that we die, we're in a battle. The fight of faith, Paul said at the end of his life, he says, I fought the fight. I've kept the faith. My hope has been in Christ alone to the very end. We're in a race, and we need to run with perseverance the race of faith and hold to the faith. And if anything is worth fighting for and running for, it's this. So Jesus Christ died to set you free. He's brought you this freedom. Stand in it. Believe in it. Don't deviate from it. Don't go back to the yoke of bondage. Don't believe false teachers who come in and say, no, no, it's not that good. No, no, you have to do more than just believe. And I'd like to just quickly say five ways in which Satan deceives men to do what would we would think un unthinkable. To leave that freedom and to go back to the law. Because we might say, why would anyone do it? Why would anyone leave that freedom to go back to the law? And it's actually very easy. And here is five very quickly. First of all, because when Satan comes with his yoke of slavery, he doesn't look like slavery. He doesn't come and say, hey, here's my chains. Let me come put these on you. You want to, you want to get on my yoke of slavery again? Yeah, this is bondage. Leave that freedom and come into bondage. He doesn't come to us presenting slavery. He comes to us presenting freedom. He comes to us presenting the law as the way of blessing, the way to heaven. And he deceives people because they look at that and say, oh, that's the way of blessing? That's the way to heaven? And that doesn't look too bad. Secondly, he deceives people into thinking they can do it. It's not that hard. 
Don't worry, you can do it. You can do it. I'm not here to destroy your self-esteem. I'm here to build up your self-esteem. You can do this. Don't listen to those pessimists who tell you that you're not good enough. Boy, that's a popular message today, isn't it? You are strong. Thirdly, he deceives people into thinking that God's not serious in what he says in the law, that the standard is perfect love and that he will punish you if you don't do it. He deceives you. No, the standard's not perfect love, even though it says it black and white right there. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, I know it says it black and white, but that's not what he requires. Don't worry. And he's not serious when he says that if you don't do it, he'll punish you. He's not serious. You're too lovable for him to punish. Here's an excellent quote by John Metcalf of England. Men are deceived alike in believing in some deep human virtue, some deep human appeal or attractiveness, which they suppose will be too much for God to resist in the end. Somehow they will propitiate him by some means or another. His love for them is such that he cannot really mean what he says or do as some old-fashioned people used to think. No, God is too loving and they are too lovable for that to happen. I think that hits a nerve, doesn't it? That really describes the deception of Satan. Deep down, I think God is just too loving to really punish me. I think I'm just too loving, too lovable for him to do it. There's something about me he can't cast away. The Bible tells us and warns us that the law requires perfection. And if you don't give it to God, he will cast you away. That's a serious threat. That's why you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved by his grace. That's why you need to realize, hey, if that's, if, if that's the truth, if that's what God's like, if that's what the law requires, if that's goodness, and if he's not blowing smoke, I'm in really big trouble. That way is not going to work for me. Is there any other way? And there is. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'll go to it and you'll be set free. Fourthly, he deceives men into thinking the way of grace is too good to be true. No, that's just too good. You just can't be by faith alone. That's just way too easy. That's just, oh, I only wish it would be that way. But yeah, life is a lot harder than that, friends. The root of that kind of thinking is not understanding the cross, that Jesus Christ really did it all for us. And this is not an easy thing. It's easy for us. But it's not easy because Jesus had to suffer the penalty for us to free us. So when we declare that we're saved by faith alone, and when we say it's easy, we don't mean that it's not incredibly costly. And lastly, Satan makes men distrust God. So even if he, even if he can't convince you that this is what the Bible says, okay, sure, the Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith apart from works, but you really can't trust God. You know, I know he says that, but he's not trustworthy. He's lying to you. You need to take matters into your own hands. It's always been like that, you know. God says he'll take care of you, but he really won't. He's not that good. You need to trust in yourself. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ answers all of those lies and all of those deceptions. The revelation of who God is in Jesus Christ shows us that God is good and that he loves us unspeakably, shows us that God is righteous and he's serious and he's wrathful. And the revelation of God in Jesus Christ shows us that there is no other way to be righteous apart from him and that the way is open for you to be saved through simply trusting in Jesus Christ. And no one who trusts in him will be disappointed. The revelation of God in Christ answers all of these lies. Believe today if you have not. And if you have believed, stand firm in the freedom that he has brought you and enjoy it every day. Because if you're not enjoying the fact that you're free from punishment and free from condemnation, you're not doing what Jesus wants you to do. And as we take the bread and the wine this morning, let's see these symbols for what they are. The symbols of our emancipation from the law, from sin, from condemnation, from fear, from Satan, from this world, all through his death 
in that he gave himself to free us by taking our place, by being crushed, by his blood being spilled out for the forgiveness of our sins. That's a holy thing that we're remembering. So let's give thanks to our Redeemer today, our Releaser, for his unspeakable gift of freedom, for his glorious freedom that we stand in. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this freedom is awesome that you've given to us. Help us to see it. We're constantly told of other kinds of freedom, Lord, and so we can easily get confused. Help us to see how glorious the freedom is that you have brought us, Lord, that transcends all other freedoms. Thank you that we are your children. Thank you that we don't need to live in fear. Lord, as we take communion together, I pray that you would just take this truth of our freedom and impress it upon our hearts, Lord. Help us not to forget and help us to be glad as emancipated slaves. Help us to thank our liberator. You are so awesome, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.